I'm Lindsay Berra, and welcome to Food of the Gods, a podcast that explores how elite athletes eat and train to fuel performance. In these Gurus editions, we'll feature strength and conditioning coaches, nutritionists, recovery scientists, and other performance specialists who help athletes to be their best. In this two-part episode, we talk with Clint Wattenberg, Director of Sports Nutrition for the UFC. Clint was an All-American wrestler at Cornell University, where he later became Director of Sports Nutrition. Wattenberg has worked extensively to systematize and simplify nutrition and weight management for weight class athletes. He believes cutting weight can be done strategically and safely to support both athlete performance and health. At the UFC, he hopes to create a cultural shift surrounding how fighters make weight, but his theories will also change how all of us think about weight loss. How are you? Where are you? I am at the UFC Performance Institute in Las Vegas. Cool. And you seem to be the only person there. I am not. There's <laughs> immediately behind me. <laughs> well, I thank you so much for doing this. I am definitely super interested in talking to you just about the nutrition of cutting weight. It's something that has fascinated me since my wrestler friends were riding the bike in the sauna in a rubber suit in high school, which is you know not the best way to do things. So I, I definitely can't wait to, to get into all of this with you. But I do want the folks who listen to the podcast to know a little bit about you. Prior to joining UFC, you were at Cornell for nearly 20 years. You're an All-American wrestler, a wrestling coach. You were a graduate student, sports nutrition coordinator there at Cornell. Can you just walk us through your journey from an athlete who had to handle his own nutrition to a professional who now advises athletes about theirs and really what made you want to do that? Yeah. I mean, that was a great intro and mm -hmm. effectively struggling to connect the dots between my own nutrition as a young athlete and trying to apply that as a student of both academic program of nutritional sciences and a student of the sport as a collegiate wrestler and, and even as a younger wrestler has uh, really driven my passion for sports nutrition and making mistakes along the way myself is, is really kind of uh, I think internalized a lot of the lessons and, and really made it more impactful in terms of myself and then being able to convey that message and some of the, the lessons learned and takeaways to athletes that are, are working through it now. And obviously ha having um, kind of lived the combat athlete lifestyle has helped me in, in being able to represent that to the current athletes that I work with. Are you still an athlete? I dabble. I've been into jujitsu the last couple of years. I coached my uh, little kids wrestling program here through the high school and try to be athletic, but I don't consider myself a competitive athlete like these athletes are. Are you someone who still exercises every day? I try to. Yeah. Okay. That, that five, five 30 wake up call comes pretty early though. <laughs> so it's mostly with five 30 wake up call to work with other folks. Yeah. Well, I'll do some, you know, home gym workouts, but you know, that 6am jujitsu class is, is the one that, uh, that, that, fits my schedule best. So that's usually the one that I'm, I'm in there and trying to push myself uh, on a daily or, or at least every couple day basis is how I try to stay young. What do your days look like as nutritionist for the UFC? Really, really diverse set of job expectations here. So we effectively support the nutritional needs of our athletes in all phases of their fight camp preparation. So that includes uh, fight week and supporting athletes in that acute weight making process, as you kind of alluded to at the onset. 
So we feed athletes. We, we have chefs on staff that we've, we've hired over the last uh, six months or so that are really operationalizing all the detailed programming that we're prescribing over fight week, supporting around nutrition, around training, around recovery demands, uh, supplementation or ergogenic aids facilitate filling the gaps of, of what our nutritional needs may be missing. And then also consulting around some of the acute weight cut strategies and tactics. And then of course, once athletes get to weight, then we support their recovery and, and rehydration refueling. Beyond that, we back up and we support fight camps and the weight descent process. So facilitating athletes to optimally or as optimally as possible within the constraints of, of where they, they are, the descent of, of weight to support being able to arrive uh, and, and to be able to participate in their sport, which is uh, very unique compared to most other traditional sports where you feed somebody to be optimal for performance. And that's pretty much the end of the story versus for us, we have to make weight first. So there's truly kind of two competitions uh, going on. One that you see on Saturday night in the octagon, and then one that's Friday morning, uh, the day before, uh, where they have to be as optimal as they can be on the scale. So we want to facilitate that over the, the weeks and months leading up to uh, the fight week. So it's not just this crash dieting and, and you know potentially harmful acute weight cutting that um, we hear all the horror stories about. And then we're also just supporting the kind of longer term athlete development process. So we do a lot of sports science related diagnostics, body composition, metabolic assessments to identify what is the fit, the divisional fit, you know, does an athlete better fit in one division versus another? Mm-hmm. How is their metabolism contributing to these repeated weight descent efforts? And how can we connect the dots with our other resources, including sports science, sports medicine, strength and conditioning, performance psychology, among others, to really support athletes on a holistic manner. We also have kind of a comprehensive feeding initiative here on campus. Um, that's a big project right now is, is connecting the dots with, with all of our culinary initiatives. And uh, I think that's a pretty good summary. <laughs> that was a lot, but I do have one initial question. So there's a lot of fighters in the UFC at, who are at varying stages of their career. Do you consult with all of them or do they have to seek you out? Or And are you, if you are consulting with all of them, is it only during that fight week basis or is it as soon as someone books a UFC or their first UFC fight, you end up getting involved? That's a great question. So I'll back up just a a bit for those listeners who may not be as familiar with the UFC and the sport of mixed martial arts. So the sport is mixed martial arts. That's where you combine a number of Mm -hmm. different combat disciplines and there's fairly consistent set of rules um, globally. Um, Each each regulator has maybe small nuance, but the sport is mixed martial arts. The UFC is a promotion. So we have about 650 athletes that are under contract with the UFC. All of those athletes have access to our services, either on-site here in Vegas or remotely. We also have a performance institute in Shanghai that athletes in that region are able to access. Obviously, travels a, a bit you know, mm-hmm. right now. But athletes have access to our services free of charge. So when they're here in Vegas, they get as much physical therapy treatment as they need. And many athletes will move here for a a post-surgical rehabilitation, you know, whether it's an ACL that requires six months and they'll move here the whole time because that's such an amazing resource with world-class, especially sports-specific rehabilitation, strength and conditioning, sports science, performance nutrition, and we have performance psychology as well. So all of these resources are free of charge to athletes, including uh, kind of us supporting with food and supplements through a lot of our our amazing partners. Thorn Health is our our supplement partner, which is truly best in class 
uh, best quality, best uh, quality assurance and and testing R&D. So we get to support our athletes with those. And then we also have the ability to support our athletes with kind of meal prep at home. We recently announced, I think just yesterday, a new partnership with Icon Meal. So we can actually dial in the nutritional prescription and send that food to our athletes based on their specific needs. So it's, it's truly as dialed in as we can possibly make it. What are the most common nutritional problems you see with fighters? The necessity to make weight strikes fear in, in most combat sport athletes in terms of not wanting, you know, missing weight is like the cardinal sin. And so that fear drives a lot of restrictive feeding behaviors. Maybe not well, for some people, it's acute where they just starve themselves for a couple of weeks. Others will do it chronically. And so a lot of the fad diets that you would see in you know, popular culture are almost amplified within our sporting community because those tactics will be used and sometimes abused in order to lose weight in a kind of short term, but sometimes there's longer term implications. So for us, it's that metabolic health component that really is what we're trying to impact to support the long-term athlete health and wellness and, and performance as well. The fact that athletes are having you know, 20, 30 fights, maybe more in their career, and each time that they have to make weight is essentially a, a form of, of crash dieting mm-hmm. and kind of that diet cycle that those of us in kind of the, the lay community see as well, when truly the best way to get fatter is to go on a diet. And our athletes will impair their metabolism by going through these restrictive cycles. And so each time that they go into a new fight camp, they're oftentimes having to battle not just the thermoenergetics of making weight and losing some body fat for this fight, but it's the history and the trauma that their body has undergone over the previous fight camps. And so what we end up doing and the cases that we end up taking on here at the UFC tend to be some of the more challenging because those dieting tactics no longer work. So they're reaching, it's almost a cry for help in some regards um, when athletes are, are no longer able to make weight and it's four weeks and they plateaued and what do I do? And so those are the real challenges that, that we, we face. And oftentimes the solution is not to eat less. You think about calories in, calories out as this very basic equation of thermoenergetics. But if somebody's hormones and their recovery and the overtraining status has is, is gotten to a point where their body is, is crashing, we actually need to do the opposite. We need to fill in, you know, you can't dig yourself out of a ditch. And so you have to fill it in so you have a better foundation to, to go attack it. Oftentimes we have to do that midstream when they're already in a fight camp. And sometimes it, it, uh, you know, we have to wait until the end of that process to play out. And then immediately post-fight, we'll work on some metabolic rehabilitation or, or something to, to reset the body so that it can be better prepared for the next fight camp. This is also interesting to me because I do think that people, just lay, lay people think that the less you eat, the less you're going to weigh. And there's a lot of people who have that idea who walk around in a caloric deficit all the time. And they might be, I mean, I'm, I'm guilty also of under eating because I'm not good at eating huge meals. And I sometimes just don't get that last one in. It, mm-hmm. it happens, right? But I do want you to just talk a little bit about this for the folks out there who do think that eating little will make you weigh less where you just said, actually, the best way to get fat is to go on a diet. So where does that misconception come from? And what happens to your body when you chronically undereat? So the misconception you know, truly comes from, is from, you know, media and, and marketing, right? It's kind of the diet culture within our, our society, you know, really prizes. There's a diet industry that makes billions of dollars a year. And, and I think that there's a lot of 
um, those messages that filter to all of us from a very, very young age. If we think about the dogma that we've learned is 3,500 calories equals a pound. And so if, if I cut 3,500 calories, it's 500 calories a, a day, over a week, I'll lose a pound, presumably of body fat. That, that's kind of a message that I think is trickled down to the masses. If I maintain that deficit over the course of a year, am I going to really lose 52 pounds of my body mass? That doesn't happen. And so when we extrapolate it to a full year cycle, I'm not going to lose the 52 pounds of my 200 pound body just by maintaining 500 calorie deficit. So the body downregulates. And if this is compounded by time and, and duration of that calorie deficit or by the magnitude of that deficit or the fact that I'm training three times a day. And so I may be eating 3000 calories, but I'm burning 6,000 because that's a lot of it's kind of what our athlete population does is because of the number of skills that they have to acquire and the conditioning required for the sport, they end up training, you know, spending all day in the gym. And so if there's a big deficit between what you eat and what you consume, that's called low energy availability. And that has an implication around all of your different biological systems. Digestive health takes a hit. So a lot of food intolerances, autoimmune diseases, those, those types of issues, bone health, especially for females, menstruation, hormone levels low testosterone for men, tissue recovery. So your, your muscles and organs and ligaments just get older. So your injury risk goes up. And then one of the most explicit areas that I see is a lot of your neurotransmitters, your brain health, your mental health actually takes a hit. Wow. So one, one of the, one of the worst things is you, know, you go on a diet and then that drives up your obsessive compulsiveness because your brain chemistry is disrupted. And then that can continue, you know, almost can, can spiral. And I've had the pleasure of doing a lot of work in the eating disorder treatment space in low energy availability can either be a cause or a component of uh, those restrictive eating patterns that either are eating disorder or disorder eating in nature. So you have so many different athletes. You might have a hundred pound woman. You could have a 110 pound guy. You could have a 285 pound man. When you're assessing what these athletes need to eat and how they need to fuel, are they different by kind or just by degree? How does that work? Yeah, great question. Great question. So your point about the body to you know, the size diversity within our sport is, is well, well made. Our smallest division is 115 pounds for females. And our biggest division is 265 for men. And so we have a huge amount of size diversity and cultural diversity as well, right? Like mm -hmm. we have athletes of every different cultural background that you can think of, food cultures, education levels languages and we have huge language barriers with a lot of the athletes that we work with that said we try to be as personalized and specific to athlete needs and to the athlete culture and so we're trying to support first and foremost the bioenergetic needs of an athlete so training essentially their resting metabolic rate combined with their training and energy expenditure that's the daily energy requirement and so we're going to use that as best we can estimate to drive our programming and our prescription. Once we have that, then we can identify what, what level of calorie deficit or calorie surplus do we need for the performance adaptation that we're looking to accomplish. So if we're trying to be in a weight descent where we're trying to slowly and steadily result in a loss of body fat, generally body fat for an athlete to be able to make weight more efficiently, then we're going to reduce calories from that total energy requirement. Sometimes as we determine from our excess physiology nutrition testing, somebody may have too much fat-free mass, which means that they're just too muscular for a weight division. Well, we can't really fix that in a number of weeks. That's going to be on the order of months. 
but we're going to potentially create a calorie deficit that is in the way of protein and of course calories as well. But if we need to thin muscle, we're going to need to combine some nutritional tactics with some training and, and physical activity tactics that could elicit some thinning of the muscle while still maintaining most of the performance outcomes that we're looking to accomplish. Other time, we're just looking to optimize some of the energy system development. And we compare that with some of our weight descent and body composition adaptations that we're trying to accomplish with essentially periodization of nutrients across the day. As an example, if an athlete is front-loading their, their high-intensity training sessions to be earlier in the day, so 10 a.m., they have their MMA training and sparring, which tends to be the most intense, we want to make sure we front-load our carbohydrates, especially your complex carbohydrates that are going to last on the order of a couple hours to provide the priority energy source for that training before that morning session, which means we need to you know, manage our sleep cycle and our circadian rhythm so that that athlete can get up with enough time to fuel and top off their carbohydrate stores, their glycogen, and as well as circulating carbohydrates for that priority training. Whereas if they're training lower intensity skills and drills in the evening, well, we can pull back some carbohydrates because we don't need that as a priority energy source. We can drive our fat oxidation by reducing carbs increasing fat and manage our calorie deficit through kind of periodization of the nutrients. So those are the different tactics that we'll use to meet the specific needs of a, a female straw weight, who's 115 pound weight division versus that light heavyweight or the heavyweight male. And of course, everything is going to be based on body size. And so we're going to calculate all of those, you know, the volume of nutrients based on the, the volume of energy demand. So again, I just want to give people some perspective and I go back to myself because I know myself the best. I'm five foot six, about 128 pounds. My resting metabolic rate is about 1440, 1440 calories, I think per day. So a guy who is six feet and 200 pounds, I'm just throwing this out for people, might be around 2200 calories. And that's what you need just to keep the lights on for your body to keep doing its stuff. And then you throw on your six hours in the gym where you're burning another thousand calories or whatever it is, and you need to eat to make up for the rest of the calories that you're going to burn on top of all of these things. I just, cause I don't think people understand really what resting metabolic rate is. How do, how do normal folks figure that out? Do they need to go to someone like you to do that? So we're able to assess it with technology called indirect calorimetry, where you breathe into a mask and we measure how much oxygen you're consuming that's directly related to energy metabolism. There's a prediction equations that will give you a pretty good estimate as well that you can kind of look up online. So th those are, those are kind of the, the easiest ways to, well, those are the ways that, that we would look to do it. If you are in a chronic energy deficit, the turning the lights on, as you said, it's kind of like a dimmer switch. And if, mm -hmm. if you continue to be in that deficit, that dimmer switch keeps going down. And that's kind of how I think about uh, the impact of fueling on metabolism. That's so interesting. So I was checking out your Instagram, which by the way, has a lot of like beautiful food. And I'm wondering if you're cooking it yourself, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> He's shaking his head. No. Um, so you show a lot of pre-weigh-in meals and fight week snacks, which basically look like delicious little desserts that I want to stuff my face with right now. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of us think about cutting weight, like you said before, as people starving themselves, but you're feeding these athletes right up until the time they step on that scale, obviously trying to change the way way people think about cutting weight. So 
what for you, again, I'm thinking about my friends riding the bike in the rubber suit in the sauna, which is the wrong way to do it. What is the right way for guys who might have to cut 10 pounds or 12 pounds, or I mean, even women with fewer weight classes, the UFC has fewer weight classes than boxing in general. So guys are trying to fit into boxes where they may not naturally be. How do you do that? So I think the first paradigm that we're trying to base our program on is we want to maintain as nourished status as we possibly can for every individual that we're supporting. That's going to vary dramatically from our heavyweight who isn't cutting any weight to somebody else who is cutting, you know, maybe more than we would recommend, but we still have to support them because we almost have like a, a responsibility to support all these athletes, even if they're doing things in a way that we don't recommend. So we're trying to nourish our athletes as, as much as humanly possible. This is an example of something that I did backwards when I was competing that has really shifted the way that I think about it today. When I thought about eating healthy, even when I was in college and I was studying nutritional sciences, I was thinking like, okay, what does an athlete need to have energy for competition? Okay, carbohydrates. And what is a healthy food? It's your vegetables. And so the day before weigh-ins, I would eat like a big bowl of rice and, and broccoli thinking, okay, this is energy and vegetables. What could be better? <laughs> well, what I know now is the reason, kind of the purpose for what you're selecting as a nutrient source is critical in determining how it's going to contribute to the overall performance at any given time. So performance in the octagon, yeah, we need lots of carbohydrates. We need some lean protein, but it's really those carbohydrates that provide the energy to perform. Now, the performance on the scale the day before or in you know other athlete populations, say it's collegiate wrestling, it's an hour or two before. Each organization has a different weigh-in rule. For us, it's the day before. Performing well means that your muscles are well-nourished, your metabolism is well-supported, and you strip out non-essential components of your body mass. So things that you can strip very effectively. First, we're going to think about stored carbohydrate. That's going to be muscle, muscle and liver glycogen. And if you go from a well glycogen stored body to a glycogen depleted body, you can lose about 2% of your body mass just with that. Wow. Not breaking down your muscle, not even creating a calorie deficit necessarily, but just eliminating carbohydrates, burning it off and not replacing it. You can lose up to 2% of your body mass. Same thing with gut content and fiber. So those vegetables I was eating combined with the rice, it's like, okay, I'm glycogen loading and I'm populating my gut with a lot of fiber. Well, fiber is great for many, many reasons. Manages blood sugar, helps with gut regularity, healthy gut microbiota. But in that two days before weigh-ins, if we can eliminate fiber and poop out all of the fibers effectively, we can lose another 2% of our body mass. So what we'll do is essentially do a fiber load over the weekend, cut it for two days and allow that to pass through. And then comes when you're on the scale, we've stripped out up to 4% just with fiber and glycogen. In addition to that, we'll do a bit what we call a water load process. We hyperhydrate and then uh, eliminate water for no more than 24 hours. Generally, it's going to be about 18 hours. And that will facilitate urinating out non-essential water and then increase your sweat rate response. And so those three tactics will allow us, even without creating a, a calorie deficit, we can lose four to five, maybe even 6% without really stressing the metabolic system. On top of that, we'll, we'll initiate some passive sweat loss and obtain the, the required weight loss to be able to make weight and still maintain quite a, a healthy response. So to your point, those delicious foods, we want to be feeding every three hours over fight week and we it looks like a ketogenic diet. It's high fire, sorry, it's high fat, 
high protein, no carbohydrates, no fiber, and no salt. And so all of those foods, that's pretty much like the opposite of what chefs like to work with. And so our chefs have to be really creative and, and really good at their job. And, and our chefs here, Chef Steve and, and Ken, are amazing at putting that into practice and giving our athletes something that isn't just cardboard, which is what they would eat on their own. It looks like from the images that you're doing a lot of things that are like spice oriented, trying to make these foods taste good without the fat and the salt, right? Well, with the fat, without the salt, without the carbs. So they, with, they, the, they, with the fat, without the they, salt. You get to play around with a lot of fat. So that's, you know, they're using a lot of coconut oil, a lot of different options to provide the fat, oil-based options, but it's, it's the salt and the carbs that they have to really avoid. This concludes part one of our conversation with Clint Wattenberg. Be sure to check out part two. To learn more about how Clint helps to safely fuel fighters of all sizes from all over the world, you can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at at sportsrd underscore Clint. You can also follow the UFC at at UFC. Until next time, for more information on Food of the Gods or to download other episodes, visit us at foodofthegodspodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at at foodofthegodspod or email us at foodofthegodspodcast at gmail.com. Food of the Gods is a Digitant Podcast production. 